1996, Bill Gates said, content is king. And boy was he right. Three decades later, it still occupies the throne. For lawyers, law firms, and companies serving the legal industry, content marketing and thought leadership marketing are must if they want to build their books of business or increase their revenues. Hi, I'm Wayne Pollock. I'm a former AmLaw 50 senior associate who discovered the world of content marketing and thought leadership marketing and hasn't looked back. In each episode of this podcast, I interview lawyers and legal industry in-house marketers who are doing big things with their content marketing and thought leadership marketing. This is Legally Contented. Welcome to episode number 16 of Legally Contented. I'm your host, Wayne Pollock. Imagine being a big law partner who builds their book of business past seven figures. Imagine rising to the level of being chair of your department for almost 13 years. Imagine serving on what is essentially the board of directors for your law firm. That would be quite a career on its own. On the other hand, imagine building a healthcare media business that has become one of the leading healthcare media companies in the world. That too is quite an accomplishment on its own. Now imagine doing both. That is what my guest in this episode, Scott Becker, did. Scott is a partner in the healthcare department at McGuire Woods, but he's also the founder and publisher of Becker's Hospital Review and Becker's Healthcare. In this conversation, Scott and I discuss how he built his practice at McGuire Woods while also building Becker's Hospital Review and Becker's Healthcare. What's so fascinating to me and the reason why I asked Scott to join me on this podcast was because Scott built Becker's Hospital Review and Becker's Healthcare out of his own desire to create thought leadership content regarding healthcare to help build his book of business as a lawyer at McGuire Woods. This is a fascinating story about entrepreneurship in big law. If you're an attorney with some entrepreneurial blood flowing through you, you are going to love this conversation. Here is my chat with Scott. Scott Becker, welcome to Legally Contented. Please introduce yourself and tell us all how you got to be where you are today. Wayne, thank you so much for having me. Just a pleasure to visit with you. I, I've spent my professional life straddling sort of two worlds. One, the, the law firm world, McGuire Woods now for a very long time, uh, joined McGuire Woods, went from us with Ross and Hardy's merged into McGuire Woods almost 17, 18 years ago. At McGuire Woods, I served as chair of our national health care practice through a significant growth period. Also served on our board of directors for, for a period of time and um, served as chair of the department for 12 years, which is an incredibly long time and exhausting. Side by side with that, and these are very, very closely tied together, I had founded a media company 30 years ago, and it was really founded around, at the time, trying to build a brand as a lawyer. And there's a whole story that drove me to do that, but that's called Becker's Healthcare, which became... You know, it, it's all these phrases. I had no idea what they were when we were doing them, but sort of became my sort of content-driven marketing, my thought leadership marketing. It also became what's called a business-to-business media company, which, of course, none of these terms that I know what they were, but sort of between a lot of help, great people, intuition, sort of built around these two core parts of my life. And they all overlap entirely sort of in the healthcare area. And we'll talk a lot more about it. But but by background, you know, it, better or for worse, Harvard Law School graduate, um, also a CPA, sort of CPA by background, but never practiced and, and you know, undergraduate accounting and finance major. And and, and that's sort of the, the business background in a, without hopefully nauseating people and putting them to sleep. That's sort of the core business background. Well, 
I'm going to add that for some people, when they're bragging, you talk about bringing them down to earth. For you, I want to shoot you into the stratosphere because what you have done, I think you're understating your achievements. And what you have done from my perspective is incredible. And you've done two things that on their own would have been incredible, but you've done both. And, and let's just be clear here. You've built, you, you were the chair, the former chair of the healthcare department at a major prominent prestigious law firm. You are a rainmaker. You built a book of business. You became a leader, a thought leader, a business generation leader in the healthcare space as a lawyer. For many people, that is the pinnacle of their legal career and they would be thrilled to have that. But you didn't do just that. You, as you said, you built Becker's, which is arguably the leading healthcare information media company in the United States, arguably the world. You did both at the same time and you're still alive today to talk to us about that. So that to me is a phenomenal set of achievements. And I want to dig deep into both of those. And that's the reason why I asked you and you so kindly accepted my invitation to come on the podcast because the theme that I see in both of these, and you'll, well, I'm sure we'll talk about some more themes, but what I see is a lawyer that used content marketing and thought leadership marketing, although I realize those terms probably weren't being used back then, if at all, like they are now, but you used content. You used the crystallization and the distillation of knowledge and wisdom about healthcare to not only build a legal practice, but to then create a media company that served the healthcare industry. And I'm, I'm hopeful you could take us back to the beginnings of your practice at McGuire Woods. Once, I guess, your old law firm, the predecessor law firm, was absorbed by McGuire Woods. Talk to us a little bit about what your legal practice looked like back then as the young Scott got going with his marketing and business development efforts. Sure. So what, what happens is, I, I'll take you all the way back, quite frankly. So I started in my career at a firm, at a, at a, at a mega firm, um, great firm, Canton Mission and Zavis, KMZ. And I was there for my first three years. And this was back 30 plus years ago. So it, and it's a great firm. And some of my comments may be more relevant then than they are today. But when I was at KMZ back in the day, if you were a 50-year-old lawyer, you were either in one of two categories. You had, and I was a 25-year-old lawyer. You either had a book of business or you didn't. If you had a book of business, you had independence in your life. You had autonomy in your life. If you didn't have a book of business, you were at the time, and this is back in the days, 30 plus years ago. It's not a knock on KMZ. It's a magnificent firm. It could be a very difficult, challenging situation. You were, you were truly a service partner. There were plenty of service partners to go around. There wasn't enough business generators. And you had a very different schematic between how business generators were able to lead their life and how, how sort of service lawyers were able to lead their lives. And some of the service lawyers were magnificent, such good lawyers. Remember, vividly magnificent lawyers, but just didn't have control of their life because they didn't have a book of business. So the whole concept was when I left Cat Mution, I was three years there as a young associate. It was just exhausting. I was a young kid. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, went to work for my father and his business for a year. That was, I think, between my father and I, that was not a great fit and, and just went back to practice law. But I went back to practice law with the concept that if I'm going to practice law, I, I need to build a practice. I didn't want to treat any service partner not well 
but I also want to control of my life. And, and so much of everything is about, can you have independence? Can you have your autonomy? And in the legal business, at least back in the day, the way to do that was to build a practice. And so I was very, very focused on building a practice. I, and, and Wayne, I'll shut up at moments so I give you chances to interject when, you, when you'd like to. No, keep going. Uh, I've got, so, uh, just keep going. So then I went to work for a firm called Ross and Hardy's, which ended up being the predecessor firm, or we merged into McGuire Woods about 15 years after I got there. And it was really intent on building a practice. I had joined a group, the healthcare group there at Canton Mission, I'd done corporate and securities work, but touched some healthcare transactions. And this is again, back in the day. So back in the day, almost 29, 30 years ago, there weren't that many corporate healthcare lawyers. And I was intent on joining a group. I ended up joining Ross and Hardy's, and there's a great lesson here. I joined Ross and Hardy's because I had three different friends from different parts of my life that all enjoyed working there. And and this this may seem so silly, but I always found that if I'm in a place I enjoy, I could ultimately thrive. And I had a friend from law school there, a friend that I grew up with from there, another friend from college there, and all really enjoyed their experience at Ross and Hardy's which was the predecessor to my current firm. And that was enough for me to be like, okay, I sort of landed. I had a, a chairman of our group, a guy named Bob Pristave, who had built this magnificent niche practice in the dialysis area. And so I went about trying to build a niche practice. And I originally started in a few different areas and then ended up really doubling down and building a niche practice originally within healthcare, but within surgery centers. And, 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 and that was sort of the start of really having a focused belief in building a practice and I started doing this content marketing around it. I started doing sort of a small surgery center conference, a small surgery center newsletter. And these were all things that were done not to build a media company, to be branded as a leading expert in the, in the surgery center world. And, and there were different things that motivated me. One, yes, I wanted to build independence, build a practice. Two, I had a great example to follow in Bob Pristave. Third is, what happened was that the national, at that point, trade association for surgery centers was so tied into some other law firms that I kept on trying to get exposure through the National Association, but they were so tied to other other sort of law firms that I couldn't get myself on the agenda. I couldn't get myself published. I couldn't do anything. So I ended up ultimately, and I had the energy then to do this. I don't have the energy to do this kind of stuff now. I ended up sort of starting my own conference, starting my newsletter, start building a brand in the areas I wanted to be known as, as a, as a leading lawyer. And then, you know, there are no overnight successes. If there are, I don't know them, but I could tell you in building a practice, and I remember this vividly, my first year of building a practice at $7,000 in legal business, the second year, $50,000 in legal business, third year, $200,000 in legal business, the fourth year, $600,000 in legal business, then finally, after five or six years, built a million-dollar book of business, which at the time, from a Maslow's hierarchy perspective, there was some amount of business you had to have that no one could ever fire you, or if they could fire you, you could always just open up your own practice and be okay. You, know, you could at least support yourself. And, and I had the experience of being in a family where my father worked for a large company, that company went broke. And so I was very intent through the cat music experience or my dad's experience uh, of never being in a spot where I was that, where I couldn't at least lay out a shingle and be okay. And I ended up loving being part of Ross Hardy's loving part of McGuire Woods, so never did so but always felt like having that control of your legal business, growing a legal business, gave you the independence to do so. So, and, and there's so many reasons that this worked and why it was able to work. And there were you know, all kinds of issues with it. But Wayne, let me stop for a second and let you interject. 
Yeah, so I have a, a number of questions, and I guess one question I have, which which seems to be fundamental to your development of your business, of, uh, your book of business and Becker's, is how did you come to understand so early on in your legal career about the rainmakers versus service partners? Did you have an older gray-haired attorney pull you aside and say, listen, kid, here are the rules of the road? Because even today, and, and you're talking about three decades ago, even today, as you and I sit here on this conversation, there are legions of associates at large law firms, at boutique law firms, at law firms across the spectrum who don't understand that even with content talking about it overflowing on LinkedIn and blogs and, and podcasts. I'm curious, how did you become aware? Did you, were you just smart enough to understand sure. this? So I would say there were three or four things that drove that education. First was the KMZ experience. The KMZ is a magnificent firm, but there were these magnificent rainmakers. There was guys like Alan Mushin. There were guys like uh, who was Jerry Reinsdorf, the Bulls, and you know, you know, big company lawyers. And there were there were a whole bunch of guys like that that were just very, very magnificent rainmakers. And it was just clear those people had an easier control of their life than others did. They worked very hard. They were great lawyers, but they had some control of their life. Then I had a mentor at, at Ross and Hardy's, this Bob Pristave guy who was just really good at building a niche practice. You know, and third, I was an avid business reader and learner and, and you know, was motivated to have, not to get rich or anything like that, but to be independent, to have like control of my life. And, and, I, and it, was, it was clear to me. And what happens is when you're a young person trying to do this, you know, this is, um, you know, people give it a lot of, um, a lot of, it's, they, they talk about supporting it, but it, we used to joke, you know, because you ended up with two full-time jobs. You're building a practice, but you still have to do your 40, 60 hours a week of billable work. I mean, so you end up with, for a very long period of time in building a practice, you end up almost with two full-time jobs. And and it was, it was you know, it was, it was um, you have to be quite committed to it because the results don't come quickly. And, you know, it is you're, you're doing your core billable work and everything you have to do as a lawyer and building accounts and managing stuff and, and then building a practice and in building a practice to do it well, you have to actually be good at your craft. You have to be good at connecting dots for clients or to be good at simplifying for clients or to be great at being a lawyer. And so you really end up with a period of life with a couple full time jobs. So it's not, you know, it's, 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 you know, there's more support today for it at the time as a young lawyer in my late twenties. You couldn't get support. You were sort of like, you know, you're sort of like, we'll give you support after we give support to, you know, the 10 biggest rainmakers on the firm, the other next 10 mm -hmm. people, the next 20 people, the next 20 mm -hmm. people. And you're sort of like, you, you had to really build it yourself. And it's much, there's much better support for it today. But it does take a lot of drive and, and desire. I mean, for better or for worse. Well, and that's a perfect segue to my next question, which is you almost breezed right past it but you went ahead and in your leisure time you started a conference you started a newsletter when your feet were up and you were sipping a drink with a pink umbrella in it obviously you were busy as a junior or mid-level associate billing time and doing all the things that you just said in order to show your colleagues show your clients that that you are the lawyer they should turn to for more work i'm curious how did you start that conference start the newsletter both in terms of time but also did you have to get approval from your superiors sure so 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 back in the day what happened is and some things work out in your favor some don't and i started to understand this back in the day and this goes back 30 years ago i did a conference very small the first year we did it and then the firm 
and this goes back a long time ago, and this ended up being hugely to my benefit, quite frankly, and it's it's a you know a whole different subject and discussion. But the firm then you know didn't continue to fund it, and this goes back 30 years ago because the first year was very small, and they were able to help fund it, and it was very small. It wasn't like today we've had you know in the in the last year we've had President Bush, President Clinton speak, we've got Shaquille O'Neal speaking, we've got Ariane Huffington speaking. It's a much different conference business and media business today than it was 30 years ago. We had none of those outside speakers 30 years ago. They were very small conferences at the airport hotel. And they cost almost nothing, but the firm basically wouldn't fund it. So I ended up having to own it myself because that was the only way to do it. And so we ended up uh, then, you know, you know, it was it was for me, there were two ways to build a practice. You could be out at lunch or dinner every single day, which a lot of people did. You saw that in a lot of the senior rainmakers are constantly lunching at dinner. Me, I'm only five, seven, five, eight. If I'm at lunch and dinner every day, I'm going to literally be 250 pounds. It doesn't work on a small guy. It just doesn't work. <laughs> it's an awful, and it's an awful way to live in terms of family and everything else. I just don't enjoy it. I can't stand it. It wasn't for me. But by having conferences a couple times a year, we sort of got to be at the intersection of the middle business. There was a great book I'd written 100 years ago on this concept of being sort of the intersection in the middle of something and was able to sort of do that. And, and it ended up being, I tested a few different areas. The one that worked ended up being the surgery center area. And that's where we originally built out more significantly. But it was, it was a, it worked for me in terms of time management, it worked for me in terms of efficiency. It ended up being a great way to showcase clients and people that were trying to show off and people in the industry. And it was just in the newsletters were two page newsletters. They were four page newsletters. They weren't what we have today, which is relatively large websites and large digital publications and white papers and webinars, a big six big conferences a year. They were, they were it was a much smaller enterprise, but it sort of grew and grew, you know, a little bit at a time and incrementally. And, and then at some point later on, you know, after I built a substantial legal practice and had built a great team and teams are critical to everything. I got more serious at some point about building the media companies. I started to understand that since they had a real opportunity, and that's when at some point we started hiring. I started hiring people full time in the media company, you know, and 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 growing the media company in a more serious way. And and then some of those people ended up being able to really build that in a whole different way into a much bigger enterprise. When did you realize it was time for you to start looking at? your media property as a standalone business that could not be run by you? Sure. So I was about, I don't know how many years I was into it. It was probably eight, 10 years into it where, it, where it just was like, there were a number of things that came together. It was just starting to make money, actually like real money, not, not crazy money, but real money. And it was, it was starting to also like understand that there were opportunities in it and, and that, I was outsourcing everything in that business to an outsourced meeting company, which was really tremendous, but it sort of started to be a push-pull thing where I was ready to grow it at a different level, and, and they sort of felt like they'd been with me for such a long time, they felt like it was kind of theirs versus mine, and so at some point, we started hiring full-time people, and when I hired full-time people into that business, that was complex because I still had the, I was still running my practice, the law firm, and growing the practice of the law firm, that was my first priority. And, and, it, and at some point, you know, there, there's different fortuitous things that happened. One of them that happened is one of my clients called me and said, I've got a niece who needs a job for the summer. Uh, could you give her a job for the summer in your media company? And so I gave her a job in the media company. This was literally 17 years ago. And at that point, I'd already hired in the media company because now it had become not just legal content marketing, but a company. 
and and I had six to ten employees working for me, all people I sort of gathered from different places. And and this young woman who was in college, Jessica Cole, who's still with me today, who's now CEO and president of the company, my partner in the company, ended up just sort of like working out of an apartment at University of Iowa and just, you know, outperforming everybody. She's just a driven, motivated, smart, great personal skills, great talented person. And within a couple of years, she ended up sort of, you know, became sort of my partner, then became president of the company. And it was a few years in where I basically said to everybody that I, I had hired, who, Jessica's now in charge of all of you. And, and it was a fascinating thing. And, and you could only do this as a lawyer because as a lawyer, you understood that you took third to fifth year associates and made them manage teams. You follow me? That was part sure. of the business, whether at, at, at Deckard or McGuire Woods, any place. You were very used to really bright young people starting to run teams at a young age. And, and Jessica was just sort of truly magnificent. So she was able to take – I was a content person. I still serve as publisher and chief content officer of Becker's Healthcare. She was able to commercialize and understand the whole thing in a whole different way than I could – and, and we had many discussions about it over the years. We built a strategy over the years and, and grew it tremendously. But it was, but it really grew out of what you talk about. I'm still chief counselor of Becker's Healthcare. But Becker's Healthcare is no longer sort of a legal marketing tool. I mean, it still has tons of connectivity, tons of synergies. But it's not the people that know me through Becker's Healthcare today, and it's hospitals is the biggest part of it. It's not surgery centers anymore. They don't. They hardly know me as a lawyer. They know me as the publisher and chief counselor of Becker's Healthcare. But it was really. Uh, started to build out that team and then a few principles around business that led to that success but it sort of all started to come back to to the point of this discussion with content driven marketing and it early on it was to make myself perceived and you know and I thought I was actually a very good lawyer at the time as as the leading lawyer in the surgery center area and then of course as you get into your 50s people say to you still Scott can you handle our deal for us directly and you say, well, that would be stupid because the younger people or other people, I shouldn't say younger, some are other, are just much better at it, say, than I am because now I'm spread in too many different directions to be great as a, you know, as a, as a direct transaction lawyer. Still a good strategist, still a consultant, still a counselor for clients, for big clients, small clients, stuff like that. But I can't do what I did as a great lawyer 20 years ago. You just can't when you're doing enough different things. It's an amazing story about Jessica because – I think if most people heard the story, the beginning introduction, and, and didn't hear what she turned into or what she developed into, we all have been there. We've been asked to hire someone as a favor, and, and we do it, and we bite our tongue, and we hope that things don't get blown up. And it's the exact opposite here. She actually was seems to be a key driver of the company's growth. So She's been a huge driver, but, but, she, but, she, but she worked with me part-time at first for a summer. And was so talented, I, I had to literally so talented, and I hired a number of good people, and they were all terrific, but she was just playing a whole different game. And she was so talented that I sort of had to beg her to join me full time, and then she was looking at coming to work with me or coming to work for a medical device firm, and, you know, as a, as a young salesperson. And it's sort of this was sort of this, you know, not goofy little media, sort of almost, not startup, but kind of startup. They were trying to grow into a real company. And I, and I remember, you know, having to, um, you know, it, 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 she was so good so quickly. One of the things I was really good at in the law practice was, and, and many of these people ended up being leaders at McGuire Woods, is one, one of the strengths I had was 
recognizing talent early and doubling down on talent, which is everything if you want to build teams. So when, when I look at the people I've worked with at McGuire Woods, um, you know, I was able to recognize talent early. Two of those people are now on the executive committee. One runs the healthcare department. Uh, another person is now chair of the, uh, two of them are chair of the healthcare and life sciences group. But it was really magnificent people recognizing early and just trying to nurture and help them thrive versus me thrive. You know, there's this constant balance of helping them thrive and we all thrive together. And so I was, I was good at, if, if I had, I have some focus, but one of the strengths I had at least early, I don't know if I still have it today, was recognizing and seeing talent and, and doubling down and supporting the heck out of that talent and letting them grow and thrive. I mean, you know, there's, there's always this great question I, I talk about jokingly, but not so jokingly. The, a, a great manager is, is a great manager because he or she has great talent, great people that are working for them. You know, it's very easy to be a great manager when you have great, great people working for you. It's very hard to be a great manager when you're not so talent centric in who you hire and who you cultivate. Uh, one of our lawyers, who's a couple of our lawyers are magnificent, oh, were not as talent centric and they still end up being great managers, but it's a lot harder to be a great manager when you have to, and there's limits to it, when you have to micromanage or really carefully manage so many people. In, in contrast, my perspective, I really learned it from both reading and business books and Bob Pristave. Bob was very big on, we're going to hire really smart people, really good people. It's a lot easier to manage if you have really great people. So, I mean, Jess was like that. And then many of the people that at one point, you know, were mentors of mentees of mine, but have now surpassed me and just lead parts of the law firm. It was the same concept of really recognizing great talent and, and trying to support the heck out of them. And then there's always this, you know, trying to have congruent relationships they could thrive with you and thrive side by side with you and thrive themselves. And, you know, and we tell this to people in the law firm, we want you to thrive. We want you, there's got to be a Venn diagram which centers us for the law firm, but we want you thriving too. And it's the same thing with people at the meeting. We want them thriving and it's got to be, there's got to be a Venn diagram which centers just what they do with Becker's healthcare too. Yeah, no, Wayne, that's I, probably a mouthful. Sorry about that. No, but I think that that's really enlightening that, there's an understanding that it's not just driven by the substantive work product that a, that a lawyer puts out. You as a manager, as a managing lawyer, need to see talent if you want to be able to increase the the capacity of your practice to handle more clients. I mean, if you are the long-term or the senior partner getting your, your hands dirty with things that you should be delegating to a fifth-year associate, but you don't have those relationships or you haven't been able to retain those people, that's a problem. And that goes to client service, that goes to capacity to handle more business. So I think it's quite enlightening that you and your colleagues, both at, at both the firm and at Becker's, were aware of this. I, I want to go back a little bit to you getting the Surgery Center Conference and the newsletter off the ground. Talk to me a little bit about what you were doing before that, in terms of your marketing and business development, my understanding, and again, I graduated law school in 09, so my, my history is limited. My understanding was that back in the early 90s, the pre-internet days, or, or the early internet days, that law firms were still doing client alerts, but they were doing it manually. They were printing out papers and sending them until email became more of a thing and, and, and more widely adopted. Were you 
writing about recent court decisions or were you writing about the business of healthcare companies as part of your marketing efforts as a young uh, attorney? hundred percent. Yes. It was basically writing about, now I'm a transactional securities, transactional and regulatory lawyer more than anything else. And, and so it was writing about sort of the business and legal of surgery centers, what's going on with the business and legal. And, and when I originally started it, you know, people would say, oh, you're a genius. You pick surgery centers. And of course, everything has a truth to it. And the reality is I didn't pick surgery centers. I tried to build a practice in three different areas, three different niches in healthcare, and surgery centers was one that took off. My, my, my only intelligence was in seeing that that was where the opportunities and double, doubling down on it. But yeah, so we wrote a couple different things. We wrote regular sort of newsletters, or short newsletters. We also wrote what I called a mailing list letter that had a mail merge component to it. We sent out to contacts and people and so forth and so on, you know, and, and that sort of went through sort of hear some of the highlights of things that are going on. I mean, today it would be the LinkedIn post I do almost every morning about business news and developments. Back in the day, it was a mailing list letter that actually went hard copy to people, you know, and it was, um, and it was, it was, and all these things are, you know, you take your knocks when you're doing this. When you, when I did it originally, I remember somebody getting the mailing list letter and saying, oh my God, I love your mailing list letter. I use it for toilet paper. And you sort of take your knocks and all these things. When you're first building a practice, you internally get lots of people that are naysayers. I, I had a wonderful podcast today with a woman who founded a Medicare Advantage plan, a, a young woman, brilliant. And she said something, don't believe, don't listen to the naysayers. And when you're doing these things against the grain, you do get naysayers. And then you get people that are unexpectedly, incredibly supportive. And, and so you sort of have to take both. But you you do get this. Um, yes, but it was, it was content around the business and legal issues surrounding surgery centers. That, that really started to, to grow and double down on. I could see a conference being a one-off thing. Obviously, conferences by their nature are a one-off thing. I could see your two-page or your four-page newsletter being a monthly or a quarterly publication. But how do you start getting the momentum going from from the work, you, the marketing work that you just mentioned in your previous answer you combine that with your attempt to start a conference, which, as you said, was at a, you know, a, a hotel, ballroom, nothing nothing extraordinary. You have the work you're doing, the marketing and BD work you're doing. You have this conference you're trying to put on, this newsletter you're sending out. How do those snowball into an, an early kind of an early stage Beckers? Like, where does the leap? Sure. Where's the leap from those no, three that, that, things? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. So I would say that, like, um, by the time this was all under the umbrella of Becker's at the back in the day, Becker's Ambulatory Surgery Center became, before it came in Becker's Healthcare. And then, then what happens is it was making enough money that I started between that and my law firm income to be able to hire people. So I started to hire people. And, and then, you know, it's sort of, um, and, and what happens is once you build a small team and you're in the media business or any business, oh goodness, in the law business, there was this concept of, having a very small team was dangerous because if you had a very small team, as soon as you, I used to judge, you know, back in the day when somebody resigned, how much of a stomachache it gave me. You follow me? Sure. And so you, you couldn't serve clients and grow the kind of clients you wanted to grow and serve the clients you wanted to grow without a great team. And, and that was true in the law business, but it, but it was actually, you know, and, and once I built a more competent team, a, a deeper team, it was easier also to, to market more and bring in clients because they're both very synergistic. You need a great team and great clients. We always say the law business is a very simple business, great clients and great team. 
great lawyers and great clients. In the media business, what what really happened is once we got to see our, sort of be Becker's Surgery Center, Becker's ASC, and grow into you know a reasonably successful small publication and conference business, what happened was you end up in the same spot as you ended up in the law business is you can't be in this very small spot. You have to get a little bit bigger because you had to be a little bit bigger to be able to to sort of retain the right type of editorial people, the, the, the right type of conference people, the right, the right sort of business team and editorial team. And you couldn't do so with only one product line. So we ended up in the media business making a decision pretty seriously with Jessica and I, and this goes back 15, 20 years ago, that we had to expand in a couple other areas. Um, and it was really as much driven by, you know, we just couldn't sustain it with the right talent level of people is a very small, small company. It just didn't work. And so we ended up expanding into hospitals and health systems in orthopedic and spine. Orthopedic and spine was very, very close to surgery centers. So of course, I thought that would be the growth engine of the company. Uh, but in, 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 in contrast, what really ended up being growth engine in the company, which it is today, and it's 80% plus the company, is the hospital and health system side, Becker's Healthcare, Becker's Hospital Review, but, but what really drove it was you got to this very clear point where you couldn't retain and grow the type of talent you need without being a little bit bigger enterprise. And, you know, we, we talk about constantly being niche-centric, customer-centric, and team-centric. And, and I'm a big believer. There's an old business author, Jim Collins, who believes that things really start with people, not strategy. If you build the right people and the right team, you could almost do anything, which is just trying for a result versus building a great team. It's very hard to do anything. And, and we're a big believer in that. So it, it really came down to, we, we needed to be a little bit more substantial to build the right kind of team. Wayne, I hope I'm answering your question. I hope that's helpful. No, it's, fa it's fascinating. The, the idea like retention by growth, that the only way to keep the people who are going to help you grow is to in fact grow because otherwise they're going to leave for bigger and better opportunities. And I guess the, the follow-up question I have then is, as you start to grow, how are you charting your direction of growth? It's a great question. So we, we sat down, Jessica and I sat down, and this goes back a very long time ago, but a lot of the principles are still the same. We looked at a couple different media companies. There was one media company that was highly focused just in the area we're in. And, and, and it was a very solid media company, but we said we didn't want to be that because there were limits to being just in one area. There was another media company that was in 25 different areas, but really three or four of them, they were deeper in and competitive in. And we basically made a choice, and this was back a long time ago, that we wanted to be somewhere between those two. We didn't want to be in 20 different areas, but we wanted to be very centric in four to five areas. And, and we still really are. We've got some more expansion, different things that we're doing, but really focused in four to five areas versus in 20 different areas, but we couldn't just be in one area. We, we wanted to, I had a law, a rule in the law firm. I never wanted to be more than, a, a, two people away from the people working on my clients. So I never wanted to be more than, you know, I, I always had a supervising partner or a colleague and then junior people perhaps, but I never wanted to be very far away from my clients and closest to it. And the media company lived by a similar rule for a very long time. We didn't want to be in a hundred different areas. We wanted to be in four to five. And, and then we sort of, um, you know, there's a number of different business readings, thinkings, et cetera, that we live by. There's an old book called Profit from the Core, which means you keep on building things in close adjacencies to what you're doing versus far adjacencies to what you're doing. So, so for us, that meant as we were expanding, 
it was, you know, I mean, doubling down in the areas we were in and we grew new areas, trying to grow into areas that were very close to that. And that was your easiest chances for success. Then we talked about a number of other principles as we looked at areas. You know, it's the same thing in building a legal practice. Can we win in the area and is it worth winning in? Was, was one of the fundamental questions we'd constantly come back to. And then in the media business, we constantly look at how do we stay so closely connected to our audience that we're a magnet for what we say readers, listeners, and attendees in the different, you know, the different modalities that we work with, but staying so closely connected to our core so that we continue to be valuable and tightly connected to that core. And so I, I've shared with you a number of different thoughts, but you know, we try to be very focused on a handful of areas, not a hundred areas. We try to constantly look at things. Can we win in them? Are they worth winning in? Um, and, and then it, it constantly comes back to the niches that we're in being niche centric and constantly trying to, you know, retain and grow great people. And, and, and like in the law business, the media business, we talk about constantly churning customers is bad. So we talk about constantly, how could we be customer centric? How can we take care of our customers so well that they keep on working with us? You know, some of the best success I've had in the law firm is clients that are still with the firm literally 25 years after they started with us and have grown to being either major parts of larger companies or major clients themselves. And so we look at how do we keep clients, they very great service orientation in both businesses. When you are engaging in this deep strategic thinking about where the, the future of Becker's lies and the direction you want to go, how did you at the same time balance your legal practice? And when I say balance, I mean it in two ways. One, I mean, how were you able to keep up with the work and make sure that your clients were happy? You just talked about never being more than two steps away from your clients. So how did you ensure that Scott Becker, the lawyer, was still the was still performing at the level that he had to in order to stay in good standing with clients? But also, I'm wondering, Lawyers are sometimes a jealous bunch, and I'm wondering if there were any partners, and obviously you need not name them, any partners or colleagues who may have explicitly or implicitly suggested that maybe Scott Becker isn't really fully committed to being a member of the partnership in this firm, because look what he's doing over there with this ever-growing business. I'm curious how you balance both, again, the work product and, and, and you being a lawyer and arguably the political side of your growth. Sure. So those are great, great questions. On the, on, the, on the practice side, what we did, and we did it for a very, very long time, we had what we would call core clients. And those were the clients that were above a certain amount of dollars per year that were sort of what really paid the bills. And they were clients that originally I was responsible for, originally originated, but they were what we called core clients. And then we had core client teams. And we would literally, for as long as I was engaged in, in that level of the practice, before I turned over a lot of my clients to my junior partners, who are now senior partners, what we would have weekly meetings to go through, you know, what is going on with those core clients? And so we had three or four, you know, weekly team meetings. And it was really, it was not, you know, what, what I've always found is it was, uh, there was a group that me and a couple of colleagues were really what you'd call running or, or driving and so forth. There was a total of 10, 15 lawyers, but those 10, 15 lawyers would meet in subgroups three to four times a week to make sure we were on top of what's going on for each client. And we, and we had many rules of practice. One rule was, you know, something small for a big client is very, very important. And, and early on, people would make errors and not understand the priority is those clients that, that drive the firm that keep our lights on. We got to make sure they're taken care of closely. And, and just like back in the day, today, this is 
natural for law firms. You, it, we, we made choices at some point that we couldn't be everything to all people. So we, we moved from, you know, back in the day when I was first growing up practice, we might have individual physicians as clients and healthcare practice. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't, even though it's a pleasure and you engage them closely, you know them well, you become personally involved. It just doesn't work for a major law firm. We got much, much better at focusing on these are our core clients. We have to take care of them really well. And we did things that people talk about today in terms of daily huddles. But we had very scheduled, very rigorous weekly meetings around clients and what's going on with them to make sure we're taking care of them. We would keep tasks for clients. And we, we just were very, you know, plugged in and had a, you know, and you can't do this without a great team of people. And so, you know, so that was overall went really well. You know, I, I on, the, on the jealousy side, I have to say we had built a great practice. We had been extremely supportive of my colleagues and loved seeing them thrive. And for all the sort of like, you know, the potential for jealousy and challenges, I've had just magnificent support from Ross and Hardy's and McGuire Woods. I mean, Ross and Hardy's early on, it was hard to get the resources. And so I built the resources myself because it was just how it worked. But I, I've ultimately had magnificent success. I mean, in, 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 in magnificent colleagues and tried to be very supportive of my colleagues. So I, I didn't, I didn't um, you know, I would, get, I would get it more from outside lawyers when our practice started to grow to a different level. We had big health systems as clients, big private equity as clients as clients. We'd have outside lawyers that would say to somebody that we're both pitching for business, a client we're both pitching for business, the, the faint phrase would be, would be they would say things like, oh, he's a great surgery center lawyer. And that was their way of trying to paint the picture of <laughs> Scott and his team, you know, weren't capable of handling a huge health system transaction or a huge private equity fund transaction. But like everything else, we sort of, our people grew and we grew into bigger and bigger clients and the firm's now a mega firm. But it was, um, you know, there, there was more of that from outsiders, but there was also a lot of mutual respect. You know, we, we, we believe if you want to do this forever, you better like people. You you better really like people and like interacting with people. And and I tend to. And you know, there's there's an old phrase in business. You don't know you're succeeding until you get punched in the nose. So every once in a while somebody would punch me in the nose. And you'd have to look at it and say, it means that we're doing okay. You know, you sort of take the good with the bad. Like I remember, you know. You know, you just periodically you get something where somebody just took a shot at you. It was hardly ever internal. I had really good luck with my partners internally. They were very supportive. I did my job, though. I served as chair of the department for 12 years, which is like unheard of in today's world. It was, you know, and it would, by, this, by the time I gave up being department chair, I turned it over to this woman partner of mine, Amber Walsh, who was just magnificent. And it was time for me to be done with it. I was exhausted from it because, as, as you know, being a department chair in a big law firm today, so much of it is spent recruiting and 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 those kinds of things. And I just had gotten older, and it was harder and harder. And Amber was ready for it, and she did just a magnificent job of then chairing the healthcare department. And I did two stints of it six years apart. It was exhausting, but I put in my due. So I knew a lot of people <laughs> in the firm, and they knew that I do what I say I'm going to do. And they, I just got great support from the firm. Now Holly Buckley's chair of that department. She does a magnificent job. But it was, it was, I, I had, I had, I felt like I had paid my dues. It was not, I, I wasn't. I, I built a great practice. I worked very close with people. We all know that in law firms, you go up, you go down. Life goes on, uh, and I've accepted that, you know. But but we did have um, we did have great support from the firm, and still have great support from the firm. I mean, I mean, 
you know, we, we've, uh, we've, you know, we've, uh, we were fortunate we merged into McGuire Woods versus merging into like Scan or something like that, which would never put up with what I do. You know, <laughs> it, now, of course, we're a big institutional firm and it's a different world, but a magnificent firm. They've been, you know, crazily supportive. How did you balance maybe not technical conflicts, but positional or reputational conflicts with your clients on one hand and the credibility of Becker's? On the other hand, because I would imagine maybe not early on, but at a certain point as both your practice grew and Becker's grew, there might be times where your McGuire Woods clients participated or engaged in activities that were newsworthy for Becker's and maybe not always a positive type of newsworthiness. And I'm curious, how were you able to navigate that? Because that to me is fraught with landmines if you're not thoughtful about it. Sure. So I would say that over the last 10 years, they became totally separate enterprises. I mean, Becker's Healthcare is its own editorial team. We've got 30 full-time writers. We just don't control what goes on there in that type of way. We just can't. You know, we just can't. I mean, it just, and, and my writers won't, journalists won't put up with it. So we just really stay away from it. And, and you have to remember too, Becker's Healthcare, when I was first doing this back in the day, Becker's Healthcare and me as a lawyer were two totally synonymous things. We dealt with a lot more of that. As we got into this a lot longer, they just became much more separate things and we just had to avoid them. I mean, you know, it, we just we just really stayed out of it. And so, you know, it, 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 you know, it's it's more... Oh my goodness, we get the issue today where an advertiser says, you know, we got in trouble for this and you guys covered it like that. And we're sort of in the same spot that other media outlets are today. We like, we don't have to, it just is what it is. We're, we're, um, we try and keep our hands off the editorial team and all that stuff. And if any, and clients don't like, the clients don't associate in the same way that they did 15, 20 years ago with me as the lawyer at McGuire Woods and so forth. I mean, it's not that it doesn't come up, it just is not. Nearly the issue was a long time ago, but it's it's a it's a great question, and we try and like completely keep our hands off the editorial team's judgment and all that stuff, or they or they literally like will hate me and want to kill me. Do you think it's possible if we took Scott Becker in a DeLorean, we took him out of the early '90s, and we brought him into 2022? Do you think that? the legal environment and the business environment of law would allow Scott Becker to do what he did back then today. And the reason I ask is because on one hand, it, it, it's hell of a lot it, easier to create media. It's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a magnificent question. It's a magnificent question. I mean, I was very fortunate that back in the day, my predecessor law firm didn't want to own this or hold this and said, it's yours, do what you want, but keep on growing. And I, and I was, you know, I was, I became fairly early on after a few years in an important part of the firm. And it, you know, it's like a lot of things. I had a lot of freedom as long as I was contributing in a serious way to the firm today. It, you know, you still can do a ton of self-branding thought, marketing, branding, content branding. I think it would be harder today to, to build your own media firm you know, is is part of at least a larger firm. It's sort of the firm. It's it's a much different world than it was. And now today, everybody's somehow or another involved in the thought leadership. Back then, it was somewhat. It was somewhat. It wasn't nearly as way the way that people built law practices back in the day. People built law practices, like I said, through their through their communities, through their clubs, through their associations. Through you know, it was less of like thought leadership and constant speaking and writing. And I I kept this crazy schedule of speaking and writing for a long time. And it was much more so personal connectivity. 
Now much more of it's built in this mix of personal connectivity. It still starts with a person hiring you at a firm or a company and this thought leadership stuff. So I think there's different ways you could do the same thing today to build a brand. And we see a lot of that. We have magnificent lawyers at McGuire Woods, as an example, doing a ton of brand development, not building a separate media company, but brand development, thought leadership stuff. And a lot of it's, you know, a lot of it is stuff that is mirrored off of stuff that I did originally. We have a magnificent healthcare private equity conference within the firm that is hugely successful that guys like Jeff Cockrell, Tom Zahn, Amber Walsh, a whole bunch of people run that's been crazily successful, branded it built in the same way that we built some of these other things, but you know, but but built within the umbrella of the law firm. So it, it's it, it's more complex, but the flip side is we have lawyers that have built these magnificent practices at McGuire Woods, as they've done at other firms, with with a lot of thought leadership content type driven marketing, you know, by branding themselves as the expert within in, in one example here, it's in healthcare private equity, in other firms it might be around something else. So I think there's different there's a lot of things that are the same. There's a lot of things that would be more challenging in today's, you know, business and legal environment to grow this from scratch, you know. Yeah, it, it, it's a fascinating question, a hypothetical question, because on one hand, as I, as I mentioned, it's much easier to create media today than it was three decades ago. And I think for that reason, to your point, you do see a lot of people who are doing thought leadership. Yes, it's, it's easier and harder. It's easier and harder, I would say. Is, is like, and the reason I say that it's, it's easier, yes, because in two seconds you could be on LinkedIn or something else and sending out something like electronically. It's harder because the world is so overloaded with information. So it's harder to stand out today than it was back in the day. So I would say it's, it's both easier and it's harder. And what people you know, need to realize there's an old concept in advertising that if you want somebody to hear your message, and many people that are lawyers don't get this and they don't understand it, somebody's got to hear your message. The old rule of thumb was I got to hear it 15 times for them to start to recognize you and put you in contact with or associate you with whatever you're trying to do. And you know, today, you you know, there's there's this service called Constant Contact, and unfortunately, the title says it all. For people to really start to understand you and perceive you in a certain way, you have to be sort of branded constantly in a certain way. Whatever your brand is you're trying to to sell, you know, smart and I'm the expert leader in this area and, and you know, white collar, you know, healthcare litigation, whatever it is, you have to today be so pervasive in it. And it's such a crowded world. It's totally doable, but it's this great mix of sort of like when people talk to me about building a legal practice, yes, we get this big marketing media business I built, but my legal business, if I'm trying to build legal business, it still comes, it's still one-on-one, a ground war. It still is, you know, it's still one-on-one, you know, talking to people and, and, you know, and so forth and building a practice. I mean, you can't, there's no substitute for it. It's really still very, um, you know, the, the building thought leadership is what I call air support, but really building a practice takes one-on-one you know, it's 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 it really you still do have to touch people directly. Nobody hires me off an email. Nobody hires me off of like, you know, off of something. They've got to see me, meet me. They got to meet our team and so forth. So it still is a great combination of of both things. You know, I love that visual that that combination that they have to get to know you and and like you and maybe even trust you through the face-to-face contact, but the content is what helps reassure them that this guy, Scott Becker, knows what the hell he's talking about because look at this long 
body of work he has regarding surgery centers or whatever area of law you're practicing, it's really neat how they they blend together the the personal and the relationship, but also the substance. And I think it's on attorneys to have to blend those two together to create a a, um, compelling kind of marketing and business development effort to bring on clients. I just want to comment on that for one second. One of the things I, I tell young lawyers trying to build a practice is when you first dabble in it, people don't know to take you seriously enough. When you stay with it long enough, it starts to do exactly what you're talking about. They start to perceive you, people that you're trying to communicate with, build a brand with, that, oh, this person is serious about their craft. They actually, you know, and that's what you're trying to say to clients, to potential people that you're going to work with. Yes, this person, Wayne Pollock, he's serious about what he does. He takes what he does seriously. And, and that's sort of the... That's the that's that's very very important that people view it as like there's there's young lawyers that are from now they're young partners Brett Burnett Tim Fry a whole ton of others, you know, uh, Orly Wally whoever they are not to give shout outs but but that have proven over time they take what they do seriously Aaron Dine you know a whole bunch of people and that's I mean erroneous but this is the game that people know you're serious about what you're trying to do you're serious about your career and and people don't want to hire people that they don't think are serious about their career. It's funny. I was just about to ask you to leave us with one pearl of wisdom specifically addressed to younger lawyers at large firms or boutique firms who are attempting to get their marketing and business development efforts off the ground to help start building a book of business. And I'm wondering if is that taking make sure that people know you take things seriously. Is that what you want to your your last pearl of wisdom or do you have any others you want to share as well? Well, I think there, I think there's, yes, but it also has to be somewhat of a labor of love because if you're going to do this and there's so many different ways to do it today. So much business days, internal development, working with existing clients, growing those clients. And at a big firm, it's much more the, the normal pathway, but, but it really becomes like, you know, it, there's, you end up with this continuum in your life of when you're first doing this as a young lawyer, 90% of your time, 90% of your time is spent on truly just practicing law and you've got to become great at what you do. So you've got to become a serious lawyer and 10% is spent on legal marketing and growth and doing those kinds of things. And over time, there's a pendulum at work where you end up balancing the two and and you have to sort of, I, I used to say about building a practice, you have to dig 10 ditches before they start digging themselves. And so there's so many pieces of advice, but one of this is it's a longer term game, but you have to be seriously committed to it. If you don't seriously commit to it, it's very hard to do. I mean, you, I, I'm, I'm sure people, some people do get lucky, some people do it, but to really build a serious practice, it's a serious commitment and it's got to be, you got to love it and want it. You got to love it and want to do it. It's got to be a labor of love because you know, for some period of time, you know, with almost two full-time jobs, seriously practicing law and seriously building a practice. And it's, it's a, it's a serious effort. Yeah. There are no overnight successes, nor is building a book of business or building a legal practice or doing legal work. None of them are particularly easy to do on their own, let alone when you are combining them and trying to do both at the same time. Scott, you have been full of of knowledge and, and wisdom and insights. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. What's the best way for people to reach out to you if they have questions about the practice or if they want to learn more about you uh, and Becker's? Sure. So the easiest way is to either email me at sbecker. Well, probably the easiest is to connect me on LinkedIn at Scott Becker on LinkedIn. Uh, and if you want to reach me by cell to text me at 
766-5322. And always happy to talk with people and give them our thoughts. You know, with enough caffeine, I could talk to anybody for a while. Scott, we'll get some shipments of coffee right out to you right after this podcast wraps up. Again, Scott, thanks so much for your time uh, and your willingness to share what you've experienced through McGuire Woods and Beckers. Wayne, thank you so much for having me. A pro, it's been a pleasure. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Legally Contented. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out the episode show notes for more information about our guests and for links to resources that we discussed during the episode. We'd appreciate your feedback and recommendations for future guests. Email us at hello at legallycontented.com. Hello at legallycontented.com. We would appreciate if you told your colleagues about this podcast, if you subscribe to the podcast and urge them to subscribe as well. And while you're at it, maybe you could even rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, thanks so much for tuning in to Legally Contented.